Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. As I mentioned earlier, I think everyone was already had kind of popped on to the Zoom, but I'll say again, we'll continue with our series on wise intention probably next week. But I wanted to honor the passing of Thich Nhat Hanh tonight. I spent my week kind of reminiscing about his books, his teachings. Uh, there's a bunch of really good articles on Lion's Roar, and I will put the links to these amazing articles on in the show notes for the podcast. And as far as I can tell, we'll get the podcast up uh, Friday. So I will give a shout out to the resources I pulled a lot of information from and some of the cooler articles that I really enjoyed about Thich Nhat Hanh's life and his teachings. But I thought it was important to talk about Thich Nhat Hanh this evening. Most people know who he was, and I'll give a very brief sort of press biography of who he was. We won't go into detail because you can Google the details. But, you know, as I went through the week and was reminiscing about the books I read and the teachings, it was this incredible reminder of how we can be influenced by teachers in the Dharma and then forget we've been influenced and transformed by some of their beautiful words and supportive books. You know, we read them, we get transformed, and we maybe we're not in the lineage or we, you know, get into a different teacher or a different part of our practice. And so when I heard that Thich Nhat Hanh had passed away, I, uh, I had this flashback to the first time I'd ever heard about him, which was in my undergrad in college and I was in a philosophy of religion class and one of the students was reading a book by Thich Nhat Hanh and we struck up a conversation about uh, Buddhism and it was kind of my foray into Buddhism at that point I was already a meditator but we were talking about Thich Nhat Hanh and I remember shortly after that this was the time before Amazon and I went to a bookstore an actual brick-and-mortar bookstore and uh, picked up uh, Living Buddha, Living Christ, I think, was one of his books. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things that transforms you if you get into it. So I just had that great memory of the inheritance I got from Thich Nhat Hanh. And as I was reading through the articles, I could see some of the influence that I had sort of forgotten about and thinking of my own teachings and how I present material. And I was reading things and thinking, oh, wow, yeah, that's... Uh, I didn't invent that. I got that from someone else. Uh, so it was nice to go uh, down memory lane and, and also just to remind ourselves the incredible legacy of the Dharma. And as you know, if you know, you know how I present teachings, I'm a, such a big fan of talking about the Triple Gem. I'm such a fan of talking about Sangha and community. And there's this sense of gratitude, I think, that's really helpful to cultivate when it comes to teachers and mentors and benefactors that have helped us along the way you know if we're sitting in this digital dharma hall this evening then someone has educated us someone has cared for us loved us listened to us healed us in some way and it's easy to forget that we sit here on the shoulders of 
3,000 years of teachers and students who have practiced just like us and committed themselves with the courage and the sacrifice and the kindness related to these practices. And uh, the monastic tradition has really kept the Dharma alive for several thousand years. And now as householders, we carry on that tradition in our own hearts and our own minds and in these, these gatherings. And every time we gather, we, we embody that influence by all of these elders who have spent their entire lives working with the Dharma and teaching the Dharma. So I feel a sense of gratitude for that. And I think it's wonderful to be able to reflect, especially when someone as as larger than life as Thich Nhat Hanh passes away to remind ourselves that we wouldn't even be sitting in this room if it weren't for people uh, like him and his gentle, kind heart. Um, that's why we're here. And it's nice to be able to reflect on that. I enjoy those reflections. Uh, just to put uh, Thich Nhat Hanh into perspective, some of the things he's known for that kind of ground us in who he was as a person. So he was a Vietnamese Buddhist monk and many folks uh, sort of reference him as one of the greatest teachers of the past uh, couple centuries. And sometimes you'll see him referred to as the father of mindfulness because he was the generation before before Jack Kornfield and Salzburg and James Barras and Goldstein, all of those folk that tend to be our elders. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh is an elder before that. So uh, sometimes he's called the father of mindfulness, partly because of his global influence in the hundreds, at least a hundred or so books that he, he wrote on the Dharma. But some of the, the big noteworthy, uh, inspiring aspects of Thich Nhat Hanh's life, which many of us know, one is that he sort of became famous in the beginning for protesting the Vietnam War which was huge. It may not sound like much just saying it out loud like that, like there were lots of people in North America and other parts of the world that did protest the Vietnam War, but uh, Thich Nhat Hanh being a monk, monastics in general are are sort of bound not to take part in politics, are not to take part in, in politicizing things or taking part in, in those kinds of things. It, it, you renunciate, so you're not going to be participating in that. And the teachings that Thich Nhat Hanh would have been following wouldn't have had some clear path for what we would call activism or compassionate social justice work. So his protest of the Vietnam War had him exiled from uh, his home. And so he took refuge in France. Eventually he did go back, uh, was able to return, but he was a protester for the Vietnam War. And he was really the person who founded this whole movement of social justice in Buddhism that we refer to now casually as engaged Buddhism. And we kind of throw throw around that term pretty casually these days, engaged Buddhism. Um, sometimes it's referred to as compassion-based social change. And he was the one who really brought that into being and was really focused on that and really spoke up to Buddhist communities, encouraging Buddhist communities to take social justice as a part of Buddhist practice and also climate change and care for the planet as part of our practice. So this was something that at the time, you know, was not uh, normative for, for the Buddhist scene, particularly for monastics, definitely, definitely not. And the other major thing that sort of happened was that he, he met Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at a conference and they were talking and Thich Nhat Hanh asked him or requested because of his influence if he would come out against the Vietnam War. And 
Martin Luther King did. He did create a speech in particular to uh, protest or contest the American um, occupation and war in Vietnam. And later on, Martin Luther King was the one who nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. And this is what Martin Luther King Jr. said about Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, I do not personally know of anyone more worthy of the prize than this gentle monk from Vietnam. His ideas for peace, if applied, would build a monument to ecumenism, to world brotherhood, to humanity. Ecumenism is uh, uniting spiritual traditions across similarities. So there was this real love in those early social justice movements of Thich Nhat Hanh, and he was a big supporter um, of people like Martin Luther King. And after he met Martin Luther King, uh, he was assassinated shortly after. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated shortly after, like three or four months after they met. Um, so it's interesting. It's interesting, this larger-than-life figure that we have. The big contribution I know to my practice is the welcoming and the invitation to allow things like climate change and social justice into our purview as meditators. And as we know, as meditators, one of the things that often is a struggle for us is how do we balance the intrapersonal work of personal transformation and the personal part of awakening with our commitment to help others, to serve others, and to show up as kind and compassionate and active beings to help end the suffering of others. And so most meditators will struggle with this all the time, going back and forth between the personal work and then the interpersonal work. And the great thing about Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings is he welcomes it all across the board. He tries to infuse this compassion for the planet, for the earth, the well-being of plants and animals and our interconnectedness with all things as a foundational principle in meditation. And he does it so beautifully and so well. And I wanted to read this quote when he was asked about engaged Buddhism, because that's really a major theme for his teachings. And if you are, if you consider yourself to be an activist or you really would like to apply your Dharma to social justice, then this is definitely uh, the books you need to be reading because his teachings are all focused on this and beautifully written. So he said this about engaged Buddhism when asked. He said, engaged Buddhism is just Buddhism. When bombs begin to fall on people, you cannot stay in the meditation hall all of the time. Meditation is about the awareness of what is going on, not only in your body and in your feelings, but all around you. When I was a novice in Vietnam, we young monks witnessed the suffering caused by the war. So we were very eager to practice Buddhism in such a way that we could bring it into society. That was not easy because the tradition does not directly offer engaged Buddhism. So we had to do it ourselves. That was the simple birth of engaged Buddhism. What I really like about this is that call to end suffering that Thich Nhat Hanh felt in his heart enough to simply just create it, right? It wasn't permissible, there was no path for it, but his call to compassion and to take seriously our highest aspiration that all beings be free from suffering was something that he insisted actually become part of his practice and our practice thanks to the influence. I wanted to talk a little bit about Thich Nhat Hanh's focus on what he calls togetherness 
or the interconnection of all beings and how it relates to our practice. This is a quote from him as well. Our planet Earth has a variety of life, and each species depends on other species in order to be able to manifest and to continue. We are not only outside of each other, but we are inside of each other. It is very important to hold the Earth in our arms, in our heart, to preserve the beautiful planet and to protect all species. The Lotus Sutra mentions the name of a special bodhisattva, the Earth Holder, someone who preserves and protects the Earth. One of the themes of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings was using meditation to overcome what he referred to as a disconnect with the planet and to each other. And Thich Nhat Hanh often said that the frenetic pace of modern life the energy of our constant consumption, the exhaustion of modern living, made our heads cloudy in such a way that we no longer saw how intimately connected we were with the earth itself and with each other. And the disconnect between ourselves and the earth is what gives rise to its destruction and to its harm. Because we don't feel the connection, because we can't honor the connection, Many of us, he said, live as sleepwalkers and we can't see the intimacy. We can't see or hear the cry of the earth, the planet, or even social justice issues because we're so wrapped up in our own suffering and the energy of our day-to-day -day life simply clouds the heart and clouds the mind. So he encourages when we practice to alter our practice and encourage the practice to be focused on the connection of all beings. And I'm going to give you some examples of how this can be done. One of the things that Thich Nhat Hanh reminds us of is that our very existence, our very breath, the very form and shape of our body are always existing on the planet. In that we remind ourselves that we are always intimately in contact with the earth. And when you say it just as a reflection, it seems like, well, yeah, of course I'm living on the planet and of course I'm always in contact with the earth in some way. But we actually move through our life without the intimate knowledge of that. We're not mindfully present of that connection moment to moment. And so here are a few of the things that are suggested to uh, invoke this kind of practice. And some of these come from Thich Nhat Hanh and some of these come from other folks that are in this, uh, in, in this lineage. When we sit down to meditate, we often perceive that we're sitting in a chair and we're aware of the sensations of our butt on the cushion or our back against the chair or couch, and we begin to be mindful of breathing. One suggestion is that we remind ourselves that we're sitting on the earth, that we're not just sitting in a cushion or in a chair or on a couch, we're sitting on the planet. We're sitting in a house that's on the land and we're connected to the earth in this way. And one way to remind ourselves of that is that when you sit down and you close your eyes, you can do a visualization and imagine yourself sort of hovering above your meditative self and being able to see that you are on a cushion in a house on the earth and take an aerial view, kind of like a drone and really get this aerial view and see that you are sitting on a planet in this meditation sit and this planet is moving in space and reminding yourself as you begin to sit that you are in fact in touch with the earth. 
we can notice that our body takes up space. And the form of the body is taking up space in an atmosphere on a planet. That the shape of our body is creating a location. And we don't often see that as a location on Earth. We simply see it as, like right now I'm sitting, if someone asked me where I was, I would say I'm in my office. I wouldn't say I'm sitting on the Earth. So we can remind ourselves of that intimacy and that connectedness that's always there, but we lose sight of because of the way that we live modern culture. Another way of looking at it is the following. We walk upon the earth. We live in houses upon the earth. We eat the food of the earth. We drive our cars upon the earth. We ride our bikes upon the earth. We move upon the earth. It is a reminder and can be brought into walking meditation, sitting meditation, gratitude practice. The reminder that the earth is involved in everything that we do. Our entire existence is never separate from our home as the planet. Another aspect of this that's encouraged is breath. Breath meditation, Vipassana practice, Satipatthana. We often talk about breath body and being aware of breathing. But how can we turn our awareness of breath into a intimate understanding of relatedness? One way of doing this is remembering that each breath that we have, our inhalation is an exhalation from other beings. Every breath that we take in, not only do we notice the sensations, but we can remind ourselves that each breath of life comes from life, life outside of ourselves. The plants breathe and we inhale, then we exhale, and the plants breathe in return. We have a symbiotic life energy with the planet. And oftentimes when we're meditating, unless we call that to our hearts and minds, that kind of recollection, you know, it's, we might experience oneness or a connectedness in our practice, or we might not. So remembering that with each breath, the gift of life is given by other life. And our breathing, our exhale, gives life to other beings, plants, the earth itself. That intimacy and getting in touch with that intimacy is what's encouraged by Thich Nhat Hanh. I noticed something with myself this last year with COVID and not to turn this into a discussion about COVID or masking or anything like that, but, but I really have had a, some profound experiences being out in the world close with others and it wasn't until COVID that I started realizing what it means to be in close quarters with other human beings, right? Normally, if I was sick, I would still go out to the store or go do something, or I would still go to work and I wouldn't think about it. But this last year, there was a different sense of intimacy. And there was this insight that I had that breathing is an action and that I could breathe intentionally. I could either breathe behind a mask or I could breathe without a mask. And that was an intentional act. And that my very breathing, the very life breath, impacts everybody around me, even if I never was aware of it before. And it was this huge change in my perspective. So when I'm out and about, the way I've transformed my practice is that when I look and see someone who's masked, I think, what a generosity to me, that they're breathing intentionally that they're awake and aware to the fact that their exhale is my inhale and vice versa, that we're always intimately connected with all beings. And COVID has really brought that to my attention. 
Thich Nhat Hanh often talks about how when we look at our precepts, we need to look at how our actions affect other beings and the planet itself. And so in this regard, wearing a mask for myself, I can look at this as a meditation on generosity and compassion. And I can also consider that if I didn't wear the mask and I was breathing out, that the sickness that comes out, whether it's COVID or the flu or anything, could be an act of harm or an act of violence to another human being, COVID notwithstanding, but just that sense that what comes out of my mouth can harm somebody, whether it's speech or a virus. And so when I was reading through the Thich Nhat Hanh articles, I saw that he often spoke of intoxicants in a way that I had never heard before. And he said, one of the benefits of not taking in alcohol was that alcohol is made from grains and we should reserve those grains to feed those who are hungry rather than for consumption of an altered state of consciousness for our own pleasure. I was like, wow, that is a bold statement. That is a bold reflection. I had never heard of that before, but that's how he oriented his practice to the world was looking at the Dharma. How are my actions truly harming the planet? And when he talked about uh, being a vegetarian, again, he said, being a vegetarian is because I don't want to do harm to the planet because eating meat, deforestation, so when he was orienting his practice, he was constantly reminding us that we can look outside of ourselves of the intimate connection that every breath is a breath on the planet and everything we do, including breathing itself or how we eat or how we celebrate with intoxicants might have an impact on the earth itself. It's a completely different way of looking at practice. I'm totally not used to that. It's beautiful to think of that in those terms. I'm going to give you another quote by him. This is one of my favorite quotes that I've heard, uh, and I was able to find it uh, when I was looking up articles. I, I love this. Uh, this is about interdependence, and this is what he says. When you contemplate an orange, you see that everything in the orange participates in making up the orange. Not only, section, not only the sections of the orange belong to the orange, the skin and the seeds of the orange are also parts of the orange. This is what we call the universal aspect of the orange. Everything in the orange is the orange, but the skin remains the skin, the seeds remain the seeds, the section of the orange remains the section of the orange. The same is true with our globe. Although we become a world community, the French continue to be French, the Japanese remain Japanese, the Buddhists remain Buddhists, and the Christians remain Christians. The skin of the orange continues to be the skin, and the sections in the orange continue to be the sections. The sections do not have to be transformed into the skin in order for there to be harmony. One of the big focuses of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings was communication across spiritual traditions. And spiritual traditions being able to honor their individuality and their uniqueness of expression and practice while maintaining a bridge to other traditions and sharing in the spirit of compassion and wisdom across the traditions and across cultures. Thich Nhat Hanh was very well aware of the challenge of social justice and activism. 
And one of the things he mentioned with the peace movement in the 60s and social justice in general is how difficult it is to be able to hold close to your heart a cause without causing harm to the people you're trying to educate or transform. And he acknowledged that one of the biggest challenges of social justice is impatience. And he said the challenge with stepping up and taking a stand for a cause is you want the cause to be successful immediately. And if it's not, it can easily turn into a type of violence where you push, demand, shame, or act violently to the people that you're trying to educate or you are inviting to transform or become part of the cause. And he said that was one of the most challenging parts of Dharma and activism is being able to do it in a nonviolent way and not to fall back into violence, thinking that because the transformation is not happening quick enough, that we must radically change the other person. We must force the other person to become different immediately. So he talks about this, which I've always really admired, was his commitment to nonviolence. Another aspect of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings is not only the interconnectedness between each other, but the definite interconnectedness and need to be meditative about the planet. He was a big advocate of basically healing the planet from climate change long before things have got as desperate as they are in the stuff that we see today. This was long before, which is amazing because when you read some of his work, he is so clear and so urgent in his speech about being compassionate towards the planet. You literally would think that this was written yesterday. It's incredible. Let's see. I want to read. Got a couple quotes here, and I'd love to read them to you. Let's see what I'll read. Uh, I'll read this one. This is a beautiful passage about uh, the earth and meditation. He says this. Only when we recognize our connectedness to the earth can real change begin. We can all experience a feeling of deep admiration and love when we see the great harmony, elegance, and beauty of the earth. A simple branch of cherry blossom, the shell of a snail, or the wing of a bat, all bear witness to the earth's masterful creativity. Every advance in our scientific understanding deepens our admiration and love for this wonderful planet. When we can truly see and understand the earth, Love is born in our hearts. We feel connected. That is the meaning of love, to be at one. Only when we've fallen back in love with the earth will our actions spring from reverence and the insight of our interconnectedness. Yet many of us have become alienated from the earth. We are lost, isolated, and lonely. We work too hard, our lives are too busy, and we are restless and distracted often losing ourselves in endless consumption. But the earth is always there for us, offering us everything we need for our nourishment and healing. The miraculous grain of corn, the refreshing stream, the fragrant forest, the majestic snow-capped mountain peak, and the joyful birdsong at dawn. I love his writing. Such good stuff. Thich Nhat Hanh often said that 
Through our meditation practice, we get to know ourselves. And to know ourselves truly and fully is to see ourselves in partnership with the planet. And if we can really see who we are, our true nature, our true self, then the natural unfolding is a new relationship with the earth and with all beings upon it. I find that to be a beautiful aspiration for our practice. Something I forget about regularly, of course. I wanted to offer uh, a few of Thich Nhat Hanh's practices, some of his gattas, as we move towards close tonight. We still got about 15 minutes, but I wanted to, I wanted to read you some of these and just talk about some of these practices that he offers. We've talked about reflection practices and mantra practices before in this group. And in the Zen tradition, you have these aphorisms, these gattas, which are little poems. And the poems are designed to be linked to activities. And if you remember a few weeks ago when I was talking about morning rituals, this is where that kind of practice comes from, where we have a morning ritual and we say an aphorism or an intention as soon as we wake up or as soon as our feet touch the floor or when we go to eat or drink or any of those things. And so in the Zen tradition, it's pretty popular to tie these little aphorisms to different activities throughout the day, which is why I often refer to these kinds of things, as I'm sure you've heard before. But I wanted to read some of the ones that Thich Nhat Hanh has because they're really, they're really cool. Um, and he's tied them to different activities. So these are the, these are the practices for the activities. So when you take the first step of the day, he encourages this aphorism. Walking on the earth is a miracle. Each mindful step reveals the wondrous Dharmakaya, Dharma. Walking on the earth is a miracle. Each mindful step reveals the wondrous Dharmakaya. Thich Nhat Hanh asks us to reflect on the miracle of waking up as soon as our feet hit the floor. I think we talked about something like this a few weeks ago. He says this about waking up. We do not have to walk in space or on water to experience a miracle. The real miracle is to be awake in the present moment. Walking on the green earth, we realize the wonder of being alive. When we make steps like this, the sun of the Dharma will shine. Mindfulness upon waking. Here's one he has for turning on the water. Water flows from high mountain sources. Water runs deep in the earth. Miraculously, water comes to us and sustains all life. To celebrate the gift of water is to cultivate awareness and help sustain our life and the life of others. Thich Nhat Hanh encourages us when we are doing things like eating or bathing or when we're out in nature to always remind ourselves of the gift of the abundance that we have and to remind ourselves that others do not have that abundance. So we might, when we turn on the water to brush our teeth, be grateful for the fact that we have running water and to remind ourselves that there are others who do not have that this morning. Or when we go boil water for tea, he invites us to do things like remind yourself how amazing a privilege it is to be able to make tea to have the clean water that you can have right out of the faucet and not have to go down to a well or to gather from a river and then have to purify. The bigness of Thich Nhat's heart really came through when he reminds us continually 
to be grateful for the blessings and abundance of the basic things that we have, whether it's clean water, clean air, shelter, heat, and reminding ourselves of how many other people in that very moment we could wish well to because they don't have the same privilege. And you don't see a lot of those reflections in the Dharma, but his reflections really focus on that. And they're really tremendous. It's a tremendous shift of perspective, at least for me. Here's another one that I really like. This is called looking at your empty bowl. My bowl empty now will soon be filled with precious food. Beings all over the earth are struggling to live. How fortunate we are to have enough to eat. Thich Nhat Hanh encourages us to offer gratitude to both the empty bowl and the full bowl when we go to meals. So before there is anything in the bowl, we remind ourselves that there are people in this moment whose empty bowls will not get filled for some time, and that we are blessed to know that soon our bowl will be filled with nourishment. And in that moment, we connect to other beings in the very process of just eating a meal, reminding ourselves of the symbiotic relationship that we have with not only the planet where the food is produced, but with other people who may or may not be able to be nourished in this moment. So meditating on the empty bowl and the full bowl is one of his practices. A couple others that I really find to be insightful. I'm going to read this paragraph here, which is a description of this gatha, because it really highlights how, well, how committed he was to infusing mindfulness and dharma into activism. And you'll, you'll get what I'm saying in a second. So he says, whenever you serve food, here is what the meditation is. In this food, I see clearly the entire universe supporting my existence. In this food, I see clearly the entire universe supporting my existence. And this is his reflection, which I find to be really powerful. He says, when we look at our plate filled with the fragrant and appetizing food, we should be aware of the bitter pain of people who suffer from hunger and malnutrition. Looking at our plate, we can see Mother Earth, the farm workers, and the tragedy of the unequal distribution of resources. We who live in North America and Europe are accustomed to eating foods imported from other countries, whether it is coffee from Colombia, chocolate from Ghana, or fragrant rice from Thailand. Many children in these countries except those from rich families, never see the fine products that are put aside for export. Before a meal, we can join our palms in mindfulness and think about those who do not have enough to eat. Slowly, mindfully, we breathe three times and recite this gatha. In this food, I see clearly the entire universe supporting my existence. May we find ways to live more simply in order to have more time and energy to change the system of injustice that exists in the world. Serious commitment. His compassion and rigor for noticing injustice and bringing that into mindfulness as a constant contemplation is really unprecedented. And it strikes me as being both inspiring and intimidating, I'd have to say, at the same time. 
One last one. This is called watering the garden. Water and sun green these plants. When the rain of compassion falls, even the desert becomes a vast fertile plain. Water and sun green these plants. When the rain of compassion falls, even the desert becomes a vast fertile plain. He says this about water. Water is the balm of compassion. It has the capacity to restore us to life. Rain enlivens crops and protects people from hunger. The Bodhisattva of compassion is often depicted holding a vase of water in her left hand and a willow branch in her right. She sprinkles down compassion like drops of nurturing water to revitalize tired hearts and minds weak from suffering. So I hope you can see the beauty of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings. So grounded, so grounded in the earth, so grounded in compassion, so grounded in the intimacy and interconnectedness of all beings. I feel it most in his teachings, I think, than more than any other teacher, that connectedness to the earth. And in these days with environmentalism being such an issue that we have to deal with, I mean, we have to deal, we have to deal with, um, when I read his teachings now, and when I was reading them this past week, like I said, it, it feels like they were written right now. And some of these were being written 20 years ago. So it's amazing to see how ahead of his time he was and how loving and caring he was uh, for all of us in the planet. So I just wanted to offer that reframe on, on Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings. If you are really interested in climate change prevention, and damage control, so to speak. His books are amazing and his guided meditations, so much of it is online these days. The books are easily accessible. And if you haven't got a chance to dive into his teachings, I highly recommend it. They're absolutely beautiful. They're really beautiful. So thank you, my friends, for joining me and paying homage to this incredible teacher who has impacted us all, even if we don't realize it. It's trickled down from all of our teachers, our teachers, the previous generation, greatly impacted by the compassion, huge-heartedness of Thich Nhat Hanh. And we all are indebted to him, whether we have experienced it directly or not. What I'd like to do this evening in conclusion, just as a reflection exercise, before we do a final meta, one of the things that always dawns on me when a meditation teacher passes away is the legacy of mentorship. I've had many teachers in my life. I've been blessed with mentors and teachers, whether it's teachers from elementary school to college professors to Dharma teachers. I've been blessed with mentors my whole life. Um, and I'm not sure if I just naturally sought out mentorship or I was just blessed with meeting people who were willing to offer mentorship. But when a teacher passes away, I think it's a great opportunity to reflect. and. I would encourage you to just, just sit back and maybe be present with body, return to body breathing for a minute. And for a minute or two, just reflect in your life, who have been the teachers and mentors or supporters of you as a person who've really held you up and cared for you? Who have been the mentors that have blessed your life 
What are you grateful for in that regard? All of us have teachers or mentors or benefactors who've given us that extra ear, that kindness, that courtesy. Who is that for you? Just call to the altar of our hearts, teachers and benefactors who've meant something to us in this lifetime. I've had several, not only Dharma teachers, but uh, teachers in my life that to this day, I'm so grateful for. Um, when I was in elementary school in fifth and sixth grade, I had this amazing teacher. And to this day, I remember like she saw teaching as a kind of like a game like everything was turned into some really fun event no matter whether it was math or reading or whatever it was she always turned the exercises into something that was so much fun and you know now i'm here in my late 40s and i still remember fifth and sixth grade and how much fun it was to learn from her and uh there's a sense of gratitude you know all these years of saying you know thank you for your mentorship and then um in high school, I had another teacher, my first philosophy teacher, and we ended up being really good friends. And I have such gratitude for just the time we spent together and the generosity of his heart and his spirit. He listened to me, taught me how to think about things, took me very seriously at a time when I was feeling very angsty in high school and as a teenager. And I really consider that to be such a huge blessing in my life to think that that transformed me in that way. And there was one other teacher I had in college in my undergrad. And again, it was a philosophy teacher and he was so much fun. He was, he was so enlivening. And to this day, I have friends of mine that we keep in touch and we were all in his class. And to this day, which is like 20 years later, we all cite him as being hugely transformative in how we see the world after all these decades. Like we still notice that we'll remember things that he said and we'll look at the world through lenses that he offered all these decades later. And we smile and we laugh about, we wouldn't have thought all that long ago that what we were learning in class was gonna be significant. But to this day, it's hugely significant. And everything that you have been blessed with, all the blessings that we have as students of our mentors and benefactors impact everyone in our lives, right? It impacts our friends, our families, how we relate to strangers on the street. And so I think it's wonderful. It's one of the things I love about the Dharma is the sense of lineage that we, we remind ourselves that the Dharma is an inheritance that has been passed down as this amazing, amazing gem from teacher to student for 3000 years. And how incredible it is to have people who have cared for us and loved us and been generous uh, of heart. So I bow down to those people for their sacrifice and their compassion. Thank you, my friends, for coming and tuning in this evening. Appreciate spending time with you. Next week, we'll get back to uh, other Dharma stuff, wise intention, etc. We'll wish Thich Nhat Hanh well, wherever that next reincarnation may be. We still have a couple minutes. If you would like to stick around for some loving kindness, we'll end on a loving kindness note. Otherwise, I will see you next week. Thanks so much for being a part of this. Take a long, slow, deep breath in, in through the nose and out through the mouth. 
relaxing fully back into body. Let's take Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching to heart and remind ourselves that in this moment, in this digital Dharma hall, we are all sitting upon the earth. We're taking up space on this planet, our home. And let's turn our attention to the breath. reminding ourselves that this breath of life is brought to us by other beings. With each inhale and each exhale, we connect to all beings and the earth itself. And with this gratitude for each breath, let's ask ourselves this question. If we could wish anything for all beings and know that this wish would come to pass, what would that wish be in this moment? May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings know true joy, true kindness and true compassion in this life. May the planet itself be free from harm and free from suffering. Thank you, my friends. May you be well. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. 
While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.